Jesus was a beautiful storyteller. He often used stories in order to teach those who came around him in order to listen. He used stories, and in these stories, there were, there were often multiple points of contact, multiple ways in which someone could connect with the story or relate to the story or get involved or, or even invested in the story. This story we know as the prodigal son is exactly one of those stories. There are these multiple points of contact, these multiple points of getting involved in what was happening. And part of the reason Jesus could do that so well is that he had this incredible ability to blend the expected with the unexpected. The known with the unknown. This story we call the prodigal son, we call it that because someone along the way in history decided to give us these little subtitles that I hope you all know aren't divinely inspired. But in those subtitles, we often find them described by the expected. This one's called the parable of the prodigal son because the younger son's story was expected. It's the easy story. We've talked about it for the last couple of weeks. It's the easy spiritual lesson that we can grab, that we look for, that the first hearers would have heard and gone, oh man, that guy's a scoundrel. We hear it today and think the same thing. But along with what was expected, Jesus did what was unexpected because he transitioned from the story of the younger son into the story of the older son. And when he did so, there was some gasping in the crowds. The younger son's story they expected, the older son's they didn't. And when he began to go there, the Pharisees especially were shocked. They were all for Jesus criticizing the younger brother types. But when he turned the spotlight and he put it on them, when he challenged the way in which they did religion, they were shocked, they were amazed, they were surprised, they weren't very happy with Jesus. These two characters, this younger son and this older son, are vital to the story of what's going on. And yet their primary purpose in the story is to point people towards the third character, the most significant character in the story. To point them beyond the sons, The hearers, the first ones, and us today can often find ourselves in the story of of the younger son. Many of you, as we've talked about it here or in small groups or in passing afterwards, you've said, I I recognize my own story in that younger son. Or when we did the the elder son, "I, I recognize my own tendencies in that elder son. We find ourselves, they found themselves in them. But the point of telling those stories was so that hearers could find themselves and then look beyond those younger sons and ultimately find the father. Jesus wanted them and Jesus wanted us to see the Father. Jesus wanted us to hear a story that was not so much about about loving the Father as it was about being loved by the Father. That's why this is actually the third of three lost stories. 
We didn't read the others, but in chapter 15, we find three lost stories. The first one is of a shepherd, a shepherd who had a hundred sheep, and he finds out that, that one of his sheep is gone missing. Now, for a shepherd, that one sheep was pretty valuable. So he left, that, he left the other 99 wandering in the wilderness, and he went to find the one lost sheep. And we're told that when he found it, he brought it back, and he threw a party. Apparently, it wasn't the capital, it wasn't the value, it wasn't the cost of the sheep that mattered to him, because surely it cost more to throw a party than it did to let one sheep disappear. The value wasn't in the sheep's cost. Shepherd was concerned because one had gone missing And the joy came when the missing one was found again. So it demanded a celebration. In the second story, we find a woman, a woman who lost a coin. Now, one coin by itself can't carry much value. And yet the story says that she turned her house upside down looking for this one coin. She had to find it. She had to find where it had gone. What had happened to it? Where was it? If she's anything like me, it was buried somewhere deep inside the couch cushions. Those things have the ability to eat all kinds of valuable things, don't they? But when she found it, she, of course, did what any reasonable person would do when they found one coin, right? She stuck it back in her pocket and went on about it with her day. That's what I do when I find a quarter or a dime or a nickel. I don't even bother picking up the penny. But instead, this woman... Refused to just stick it in her pocket and move on. She threw a party. The lost one had been found. She had found the coin that she was missing. And it demanded a party. Then we get to the story that we've been reading. The story of a father who lost two sons. I love this story. I love to imagine what it was like in my mind. Every time I read it, I I imagine, I get this picture, this image of the story walking through. I imagine that there's a a house out in the distance. Not a huge house, but but a house that, that when you look at it, seems to say that whoever lives there surely has some wealth. There's all this property that surrounds it, and there's, there's animals moving around it. And that much property, that, that many animals, the person that lived there would have had to have had servants to help take care of all of that. So, so it mandated there must have been some wealth. As I imagine this house, I imagine this, this wide, extended front porch that stretches all the way across the front of the house. Giving whoever was on it the ability to look out from the house into the fields. And even to see this kind of meandering path that led to and from the house. The way that company would come, that animals would move back and forth, that all kinds of people would move in and out. And eventually it disappeared over the distant hill. And as I imagine the story, I imagine that the man of the house, the father that we have talked about, has perhaps developed a new hobby since his son left home. I expect that he spent every spare moment he could find on that front porch, in my mind, in a rocking chair. 
sitting and rocking and waiting and watching. Watching as the the cows and the sheep made their way around the fields. Watching as, as birds fluttered here and there about the property that he owned. But never letting his eyes drift too far from the path. The edge of the path especially, the part where he would see if someone was coming as they crossed just over the hill on the horizon. And he sat and he watched expectantly. He watched hoping, he watched waiting, he watched with intention, expecting that someday that young son that had left home would one day come back. And as I watch the story play out in my mind, I imagine one day when he was sitting there in his chair watching. And he noticed a person begin to come over the hill. And as he saw him in the distance, he thought, it's him. He's come back, but he couldn't tell exactly because this image looked a bit different. So I imagine him getting up from his chair so he can get a different angle, so he can look a little more clearly. And as he looks out there, he sees that, yes, it looks like his boy, but, it, but he looks different. He looks, he looks thinner. He looks unkempt. He looks broken. He looks dirty. He looks lost. But there's no doubt This is his boy. And the next piece of the story, the next piece would have shocked absolutely everyone that heard it. It would have disgusted them that it was a part of the story. But Jesus refused to leave it out. And it's my favorite part of, of everything that's happening in this story. The very next part is we see that, that this, this, old, this older man who was a part, who was watching for his son, he would have, he would have grabbed the bottom of, of what, what really looked kind of like a dress, this cloak or this garment that he would have worn in that day. He would have reached down and grabbed the bottom and he pulled up the bottom to make sure that it wasn't possible that he would trip over it. And once he had it, up and he had it kind of held in his hand and secured, he began to run. Now he started slowly. He was just barely moving across the yard because grown men in that society never, ever ran. It was inappropriate. It was uncalled for. It was shameful. Women and children might run, but men never, ever ran, especially wealthy and respected men. But this one As he's holding on to this piece so that he won't trip over it. He starts slowly because it's been so long since he's run. But eventually as he becomes more sure-footed, his pace begins to increase. His older knees cause him to limp just a bit as he runs. But, But as he goes and as he moves, he keeps getting faster and faster and faster. And the farther he moves, the faster he runs. It's as if he never gets tired and he continues to move forward and forward, farther and farther and farther, running towards this son of his. He didn't care about the rules. He didn't care about what was expected. As I imagine the story, I imagine the boy and he's come over the hill and he's walking towards home. And and I suspect that in the very first glimpse, his, his head was down. He was full of shame and embarrassment. But as he peered up just a bit to make sure he was on the path and to see the house of his childhood, I imagine that he saw his father and he saw his father Running. 
He'd never seen this before. And tears began to well up in his eyes as he tried to remember the speech that he'd prepared as he stood there with those pigs longing for their food. As he decided to come home, he'd prepared what he would say. And he tried to remember as, as, as he was getting teary and he's watching his dad run his way and, and he's working up the words. And then there's this beautiful collision in the middle of the pathway. As they collide into this hug, the the young boy whose arms just kind of fall limp, but not his dad. His dad wraps him up in this inappropriate, unexpected, shameful embrace. And he begins to kiss all over his dirty head and face. His boy is home again. And the son who's now weeping as his dad has his arms wrapped around him begins the speech that he's practiced. And he begins to say it. But his dad won't even listen. He breaks him off midway through and he begins to drag him back to the house. And he's the man of authority, the man of respect in the house still. And he begins to command those servants who are part of the house. And he says, hey, hey, give my best cloak. You know, the ones we save for when VIPs visit. Grab it and bring it out and put it on my son and get a ring and get shoes. Sons wear shoes and the prized calf. Somebody go find it in the field. Kill it. We're having a party tonight. My boy is home again. Oh, I love this story. I love the way in which it takes place, in which it breaks from all the customs and everything that's expected and everything that's supposed to happen. As I began preparing and walking through some of the the things that I read and the sources that I used to prepare for this series, I learned something I didn't know about this story that I love so much. I learned that the word prodigal doesn't actually mean what I always thought it meant. I don't know what you think it means, but I always thought it meant runaway. As I was reading through Tim Keller's book, Tim Keller pointed to the actual definition, the definition that we find in the dictionary. And this is what it says prodigal means. Recklessly spend thrift. Recklessly spend thrift. So it is prodigal. To spend until you have nothing left. It is prodigal to spend with reckless abandon. It is prodigal to spend without reason or budgets or limits. To just let it go as if there's no end to it. And there's no doubt that the son, as he went away and he took a third of the father's wealth and he squandered every bit of it. There is no doubt that he was in fact a prodigal. And yet the most impressive prodigal in the entire story Is the father. It's for that reason that Tim Keller titled his book The Prodigal God. Here's what he says He says, The father's welcome to the repentant son was literally reckless because he refused to reckon or count his sin against him or demand repayment. This father didn't care what shame had been brought upon him. He didn't care that a third of his estate had been squandered. He didn't care that he was showering more wealth on this wasteful son in in the form of of a cloak and a ring and shoes and the fattened calf. It didn't matter to him. All of this recklessly spend thrift, all of this over the top, but it did not matter to him. It was unreasonable. It was unexpected. And he did not care. His lost son had been found again. 
And this demanded a party. N.T. Wright says this. He says, where resurrection is occurring, where new life is bursting out all around, it is not only appropriate, it is necessary to celebrate. And if the story ended there, it would be enough, wouldn't it? For me, it would be enough. It's so beautiful. But the story wasn't over yet. Because this father hadn't only lost one son, he'd lost two. One had run away. The other had been home the entire time. But both had failed To recognize the love of the Father. Both had failed to truly live as sons. Neither recognized how deeply they were treasured. How fully they were loved. So the story says, the Father went out again. Sorry, I think I'm about to sneeze. But it's stuck. Don't you hate when they sit right here, but you know they're coming? The father went out a second time. This time he had to go and find and bring his elder son home. Not to the house. He'd been at the house. He was, he was heir to the entire estate. Everything that was there would become his. And in many ways, they were likely already functioning as if it was his and he had control over much of it. Because it was going to become his eventually. So he wasn't going to bring him to the house, but he was going to bring him home. Home, as Henry Nouwen describes it when he says this. Home is the center Of my being where I can hear the voice that says, you are my beloved. On you, my favor rests. This father wanted both sons home. Captured in his love, captured in his presence, captured in the place where there they were beloved and treasured. But as he went out to find the older son, the older son refused to come to the party. The older son refused to celebrate his brother. The older son refused to join the father. He refused to to do anything that made it look like he was condoning or affirming this prodigal behavior of his brother or his father. He was more pragmatic than this. He was more appropriate than this. There is no way... He would be tied to such a thing. The story has no clear ending. It, It kind of stops in this interaction between father and older son. The father goes out and begs him. The son chastised his father and his brother. The father tried to work to convince him of how special, of how important this was. But how do you convince someone of something so unexplainable? How do you convince someone 
of a love that forgives with no strings attached. How do you convince someone of a love that overwhelms and amazes, of a love that works contrary to everything that is known and expected? Story is left open ended because the story is not really about this younger son. And the story is not really about this elder son. And the story is not really about any father. Jesus is telling a story about his own father. Jesus is telling these stories about our Heavenly Father. Jesus is telling a story about God. Henry Nouwen says this, it says, God rejoices because one of his children who was lost has been found. And then he says this, it might sound strange, But God wants to find me as much as, if not more than, I want to find God. This is the God of lost sheep. This is the God of lost coins. This is the God of lost sons and daughters. And the story can't end because the ending is dependent on you and me. The ending demands that you and I answer the request of the Father. Jesus could have wrapped up the story that he was telling, but this story wasn't about the story that he was telling. This story was about the story of Jesus. And the story of Jesus stretches far beyond the pages of Scripture. The story of Jesus begins before the very first story, before the very first written word exists on the pages. The story of Jesus continues long beyond the ending, long beyond everything wraps up. And the story of Jesus interacts with the story of each and every person that ever walks The face of the earth. This story, this story that we've spent so much time in, this is the story of Jesus. This is the story of the prodigal God. The prodigal God who runs after us to bring us home. The prodigal God who came to earth as a baby in the form of Jesus who will celebrate tomorrow at Christmas. The prodigal God who sacrificed with reckless abandon to see that each one of his children come home. There it came. Sorry, I've been holding on to that thinking, golly, it's got to come out, right? Sorry, let me get this handkerchief. Usually I use it on my children, but now I'm going to use it on myself. This prodigal God who came in the form of a baby. Who came and chose to take on an avoidable and yet necessary death. This prodigal God who came 
so that you and I could see love. So that we could hear love. So that we could watch love lived out before us. This prodigal God who came so that you and I could choose to join him. This prodigal God who came to live among us to prove that nothing, not even death, could separate him from the love that he has for each and every one of his children. This prodigal God who came in the form of Jesus, who came as a baby, who came and lived, who came and died, who came and rose again. This prodigal God who was recklessly spend thrift. So that you and I would know how deeply we are loved. This prodigal God who comes and throws a party for us. Because God throws a party every time one lost one is found. Resurrection demands a party. Jesus told this story because this is the story of a prodigal God who hopes that we will choose love, will choose home, will choose resurrection. Tim Keller summarizes the story this way. It says, he, speaking of Jesus, came to bring the human race home. Therefore, he did not come in strength, but in weakness. He came and experienced the exile that we deserved. He was expelled from the presence of the Father. He was thrust into the darkness. The uttermost despair of spiritual alienation in our place. And then Henry Nouwen says it this way. Here is the God I want to believe in. A father who from the beginning of creation has stretched out his arms in merciful blessing. Never forcing himself on anyone, but always waiting. Never letting his arms drop down in despair, but always hoping that his children will return. So that he can speak words of love to them. And let his tired arms rest on their shoulders. His only desire... Is to bless. And on Christmas Eve. Here are the words that I want to wrap up this story with. You are deeply loved by Jesus, your Savior. No matter where you have gone or not gone. No matter what you have done or not done, no matter what method you have used to try to escape or block out God in the past, you are deeply loved by your Savior. So deeply loved that He chose to do the unexpected, the impossible, the unbelievable. He chose to run out to us. Tomorrow when we celebrate the birth of a baby, we celebrate that Jesus has come to bring you and me home to his love. Tomorrow we celebrate the one and only request that ever happens in this story. Do you see what it is? Come join the party. Let 
me celebrate you. That's the request that the Father makes. This morning, tomorrow, I want you to hear that you are deeply loved by your Father. You are deeply loved by your Savior Jesus. He has come to welcome you to a party He wants to throw on your behalf. So at Christmas... Will you come home? Will you be welcomed home by the Father who loves you? The choice is yours. Pray with me, would you? Oh, Jesus, my Savior. I still can't imagine how it is possible that you ran to me. And yet we know that this is the story of Christmas. So as we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the Father who has run to us. The Father who runs to us time and time again in hopes that we would come home, stay home, live in the place where we are called beloved. May we find that space at Christmas. And may we give you praise for the privilege of living with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.